Please be seated. Well, good morning. Good morning. In case you didn't know, today is January 20th, 2019. It's a little cool outside. It is plenty warm in here. I cannot be the only one who is sweating right now. I thought, good, I'm not. I'm glad to hear that. All right. Today is the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. In January 1973, the Supreme Court of the United States handed down its decision in the case Roe versus Wade. And in that decision, the highest court in America ruled that abortion was legal at any point in the nine months of pregnancy. And while it is true that there have been some legal limits imposed upon the practice of abortion, this is still the basic and fundamental legal principle in the United States. Now, after this decision in January of 1973, many Christians and many churches began to intentionally set apart one <coughs> Sunday every year for the express purpose of proclaiming, for preaching about, for talking about, for remembering and praying for the value of human life. President Ronald Reagan declared January 22, 1984 to be the first National <laughs> Sanctity of Human Life Day, and churches continue to take the Sunday closest to January 22nd as Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And so this morning, we're taking time in our sermon, in our prayers, to focus on human <laughs> life, its value, its dignity, its worth, and thus the honor that it merits. Now, in all of this, I want to say that I recognize, absolutely recognize, the sensitivity of this topic, just as I recognize its importance. I recognize that in our, in our current, current world, issues of life have become politicized and are volatile, just as I recognize that discussing issues of life and issues of death are deeply personal. In this, I also recognize that our viewpoints upon these things are more assumed than learned. They're more caught than taught, which is exactly why I believe it's important for us as a church and as the church to address them. You see, if we do not take the risk of addressing sensitive, personal, controversial, and even volatile issues with Scripture, then we are communicating to ourselves, to the church, and to the world at large that Scripture and thus God and thus Jesus' church have nothing to say about them. And this is far from true, and this is harmful. A preacher that I very much admire is an Anglican pastor, now passed away. His name was John Stott. And in one of his books that he wrote about preaching, he said that any preacher must stand in the pulpit with a Bible on one hand and a newspaper in the other. Yeah, I think he's meaning to say that we must interpret and understand what's happening today through the lenses of Scripture. And I would go so far as to say that if we do not do that, if we do not address issues of life and culture and world from the pulpit with the Scriptures, then if we're not equipping believers to think biblically about what's happening in the world today, then we're actually part of the problem. And perhaps it is that we find our world in the state in which our world is. Perhaps our cultural waters are so turbulent because the church has failed in the past to do exactly that. So as an explanation, as a defense this morning for preaching about the sensitive and important topic of human life within a worship service, I offer two 
related statements. I'm preaching about the sanctity of human life because the cultural waters in which we swim do not hold human life with the dignity, value, and honor it merits. And as we are swimming within these waters, we are daily bombarded with this worldview, this perspective, which I fear directs our believing, directs our thinking, and directs our behaving far more than we realize. And I'm preaching about the sanctity of human life (coughs) in hopes of reminding this church and the church about the dignity, value, and honor that human life merits, and thus calling this church and the church to be countercultural, culturally aware in its defense of the human person. And so this morning, we'll look first at those cultural waters in which we swim. Second, we'll look at what Scripture has to say about human persons and their inherent dignity and value. And third, we'll attempt to tease out some implications for living a faithful life in the midst of these waters. First, our cultural waters. It's easy enough to summarize our current culture's view upon the value of human life and the dignity of the body. It's simple enough to say that our culture doesn't think much about the value of humanity. It doesn't think much about the value of human life and thus doesn't think much about protecting it. While it's simple enough to say, I think it is more important for us to understand why. I think it's important for us to understand the underlying philosophy, the underlying worldview that is manifested in a degradation of humanity. It's a bit difficult. It will require us to wade into some philosophical waters, but fear not, we will understand it in the end. Our culture has little regard for biological human life because it operates out of an underlying worldview that separates the body from the person. Building upon the writings of Francis Schaeffer, theologian Nancy Piercy describes what she calls a two-story philosophy. In her book, Love Thy Body, Piercy explains this two-story philosophy by using the illustration of a building. In your minds, picture a two-story building. On the first story, modern thought places biological life, life defined through science in which we can objectively observe. This is the human But on the second story of this building, modern thought places personhood, which is defined by values, feelings, the mind, and the desires. What has happened through the influence of thinkers and philosophers such as Rene Descartes, Immanuel Kant, Sigmund Freud, and Friedrich Nietzsche, (laughs) is that these two stories, the body and the person, have been set in opposition to one another with the person given prominence and priority. Let me, let me tell an illustration to see if I can help us understand this. Do we remember the movie Aliens from like the mid-1980s? Anybody in here remember that besides me? It was like, one, I, I still think it is one of the best horror sci-fi movies imaginable. But at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, it's been out for 30 years, y'all. If you haven't seen it by now... <laughs> At the end of the movie, the hero, Ripley, is an amazingly powerful woman, but in order for her to fight the alien queen, she has to get into this mechanized suit that is a forklift, right? Right. And she has to drive this thing around. That is essentially personhood theory. That's the two-story point of view. The human is the mechanical robot. Ripley is the person. 
And in this worldview, it is the person, it is Ripley, who has the power or has the authority, has personhood. Does that make sense? Maybe another one will help. Again, from the realms of science fiction. I know, you love the way I think. Uh, one of the Men in Black movies, one of the first two Men in Black movies before they went wacky, there was a point in which they encountered this, uh, this person. But then this person took its face off to reveal a little bitty alien hanging out on the inside, driving around this robot, right? This meat computer, right? Remember that? <coughs> Am I the only one who watches these movies? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, you guys are with me. Chaldeans, I think they were. What are they? Chaldeans. Chaldeans? Yeah, That's so. Star Trek, isn't it? No, it's not. Okay, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> That's the two-story philosophy, right? That there's something really real you isn't this. It's somewhere in here. This is what is called personhood theory. And this fragmentation of what it means to be a human person affects every aspect of our lives with regard to the sanctity of life. This personhood theory means that the whole human life, while it may begin at conception, personhood is not achieved until some point in the future when the fetus jumps from the lower level to the upper level. It's only then that the human becomes a person and has the rights of human personhood applied. Only then does it attain moral and legal standing as Piercy writes. You see, folks, the issue is no longer about when life begins. Scientists, secular scientists, atheistic scientists, atheist philosophers will say, yeah, life begins at conception. The issue now is a debate over personhood. And it started in 1973. It started back before that with Rene Descartes saying, I think, therefore I am. The cultural waters in which we, we swim thus declare that a person and a human are not the same thing and has created a new order of being, the non-person human. Here are a few examples from the legal realm, right? This is writing in the majority opinion in the 1973 case, Roe v. Wade, Justice Harry Blackman stated, the word person, as used in the 14th Amendment, does not include the unborn. If the suggestion of personhood is established, the fetus' right to life would then be guaranteed. Did you catch that? How about in the academic realm, right? Philosopher Peter Swinger, Singer of Princeton has said, the life of a human organism begins at conception, but the life of a person, a being with some level of self-awareness, does not begin so early. What about in the media world? British journalist Miranda Sawyer, in the end, I have to agree that life begins at conception, so yes, abortion is ending a human life. But perhaps the fact of life isn't what is important. It's whether that life has grown enough to start becoming a person. Now, that's the water in which we swim. Let, let, let's, let's look at this a little bit because a major problem here is that secular thinkers cannot come to any conclusive test as to how a human becomes a person. They cannot come to any specific point in time when the transformation occurs from non to. And they can't even agree on what a criteria for such a basis actually would be. A philosopher named Joseph Fletcher has 15 criteria for what it would mean to be a person. But in reality, many fully formed adults don't meet all those criteria in totality. As to age, the previous mentioned Peter Singer thinks that even three-year-old kids are in a gray area revolving around personhood. 
Science fiction author Philip K. Dick, he, he wrote in 1973, he wrote a scathing satirical short story in reply to Roe v. Wade. And he actually entitled it The Pre-Persons, in which the standard was set at 12 years of age. In his science fiction story, a person became a person at 12. A mother comforts her son that the abortion van wasn't coming to get him with the words, Look, you have a soul. The law says a 12-year-old boy has a soul. And then later in the story, it's revealed that the age of 12 was only seized upon because that was when a child would be able to do higher math like algebra. Y'all, I'm 41 years old. I can't do algebra. <laughs> now, we, tell, we, we joke a little bit to break some of the tension here, but the sad reality is Philip K. Dick's standard in a science fiction work is no less arbitrary than any other set of criteria created by scientists. It's no less arbitrary than whatever Singer says and whatever Joseph Fletcher says. What happens, though? What are the consequences of these deep cultural waters, this fragmentation, this personhood theory? <coughs> the thinking that persons are like ghosts trapped in a machine that the real person is not connected to the juicy robot that it inhabits, but is rather stuck in a meat suit that it has to drive around for a bit, that impacts upon every aspect of society. Because the ultimate consequence of personhood theory is dehumanization and the devaluing of the body. Thus, if the body and the, li and the life of the body is of little consequence, then it can be ended or altered at will. Ripley can get out of the machine when she wants. The Chaldean can, can transport home when he wants. The tragic consequence is found here. Those who do not meet the criteria for personhood, whether unborn children or elderly men and women, are non-persons. Just bodies, disposable pieces of matter subject only to a cost-benefit analysis. This is what drove Margaret Sanger and the eugenics movement of the teens and 20s and the founding of Planned Parenthood. Margaret Sanger had a huge impact upon Adolf Hitler. What's the first thing that Hitler began to do as he sought to purge his society of, of homosexuals, of Slavs, of Poles, of Jews? Devalue their humanity. What happened in Rwanda in the mid-90s? The Hutus began to refer to the Tutsis as cockroaches. This split personality syndrome, this personhood theory, ends up with those not meeting the criteria for personhood, whether unborn children or elderly men and women, whether physically limited or mentally limited, and in the past, those with a different skin shade or a different ethnicity than those in power are seen as non-persons, just bodies, disposable pieces of meat, subject only to a cost-benefit analysis. And while we typically focus on the value of human life with regard to the topic of abortion, and it, it's good that we focus on abortion, folks. Here in 2019, we're now close to 60 million children have been killed since 1973. It's important to realize that it's a much larger topic than this single item. The sanctity of human life, the sanctity of human life is something that applies from the beginning of human life to its end. 
It impacts everything in between as it should direct our behavior toward ourselves and others, toward our family, toward our friends, toward our neighbors. The sanctity of human life should be in our consideration of how we treat human beings, how we treat refugees and immigrants, the helpless and the hopeless. The sanctity of human life should make us quick to protect all human life and slow to ever take it, slow to ever endanger it, slow to ever abuse it, slow to ignore it. And I've spent a lot of time on this this morning because I believe it's important for us as believers in Jesus Christ under the authority of Scripture to understand and recognize not only what our culture believes, but why our culture believes it. I don't think a fish knows it's in water, and I don't want us to be in that same situation in these cultural waters in which we swim. So recognizing then that this is what culture proclaims, it's good for us, it's proper for us, it's required of us to then ask, is this what Scripture has to say about human life? Is the true person just a ghost in a disposable machine? I think we can quickly answer this question by simply stating the truth. The Bible declares that human persons are more than ghosts in a machine. Before anything else, we must recognize that the belief that a human is not necessarily a person is absolutely false. It's bad philosophy, it's bad anthropology, and it's bad theology. The scriptures maintain and the Orthodox Church has always maintained and always believed that the human person is an integrated unit, that human persons are embodied souls, that the flesh matters. To be a human is to be a person, and the two cannot be separated. To be a human is to be a person, is to have value and dignity and worth, and as such, human life is sacred. But why do we say this? What is it that makes a person a person? If you have your Bibles, open in the Psalm 139. Doug read for us the first 16 verses this morning, and we're going to walk through a, a few of these verses to point out three aspects of Psalm 139 that make, person, uh, make a human being a person. And we're going to do it a little bit out of order. We're not going to start with verse 1. Uh, so for those of you with OCD tendencies, I apologize. We're going to start at verse 13. The first mark of being a person, of personhood, is being created in the image of God. And so let's look at Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. This is David speaking. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. David, the psalmist on this occasion, sees God's actions on his behalf as a specific case for God's universal actions on behalf of all people, all human persons. In these verses, David declares that God was personally involved in his personal creation, that God took care over him even as he was unborn. Even before his mother knew he, she was pregnant, God was involved in the creation of David. God's intimate connection with and care over the formation of babies within the womb is connected to the intimate connection and care he showed over the creation of the first man and first woman whom he created in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. The work of God in the creation of human beings in his own image makes these humans a person. 
and gives the whole of the being, body and soul, value and dignity and worth. Human persons, we must remember, are the only bit of God's creation that were gifted His image. And the implication there is that there is something fundamentally different in quality uh, about God's creation of humans from His creation of any other animal. God made a giraffe and pronounced it good. God made man and woman in his own image and called it good. Now, regarding the image of God and connected to our conversation about this personhood theory, Professor John Walton has written, whether someone is spiritually unregenerate, physically limited, mentally incapacitated, old or young, high-functioning or low-functioning, all who are human have the status image of God. The image is not genetic or biological. We cannot lose it or fail to achieve it. A child consumed, conceived in the, the womb of a mother is made in the image of God. A woman in her late 70s suffering from Alzheimer's, my grandmother, even then not knowing who I was, made in the image of God. It cannot be earned. It cannot be bought. You don't have to jump from one level to the other, and you never can lose it. You don't stop becoming a person because you can't remember your grandson's name. You're still a person made in God's image. You still have value. You still have dignity. You still have worth. Why? Because you are made in the image of God. The second mark that makes a human a person is being created to know and be known by God. Our Psalm 139 actually begins, Our Lord, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. And then David goes on to describe the depth and the totality of God's knowing knowledge of him. A depth of knowledge that includes the plans and the paths of David's life. The, uh, knowledge that includes the words on the tip of David's tongue and the inescapable presence of God. For our purposes this morning, let's focus on that idea of knowing and being known. The ability, joy, and privilege of being known by another and in knowing another makes us people. I think this is one of the reasons why uh, the companionship of marriage is so powerful. is because there is no one else who knows me in all of this world like my wife, Anna. Makes it powerful because in some way, personhood is coming from being known. We're made to be known. And not just made to be known by one another, but made to be known by God who is our creator. The Hebrew word translated as know here in Psalm 139 is the word yada, used far more reverently by David than by Elaine Bennis in Seinfeld when she says yada, yada, yada. <laughs> yada means more than just a surface level knowing. It means more than just an intellectual knowledge. Rather, it refers to a very personal, intimate level of knowledge connected to observance of and care for the object that is known. If you're a, a father or a mother, a grandfather or a grandmother, if you're an uncle or a, an aunt, if you are ever been around a kid, you think about how you know a child is from observance of and care for. 
What a glorious thing that David is saying about our God. God knows David. Why? Because he created him, but because he observes him. God observes David. God cares for David. This is an intimate, personal level of knowledge. What a glorious thing David is, is, is declaring about himself and all human persons, known by God. God has a personal, intimate knowledge of and care for those whom he has created. And his desire is to be known by the human persons of his creation. Appropriate for a conversation this morning are the words of John Wyatt. In Christian thinking, whatever happens to you in the future, whatever disease or accident may befall your central nervous system, even if you are struck down by dementia or enter a persistent vegetative state, you will still be you, a unique and wonderful person known and loved by God. My grandmother, near the end of her life, as she was losing this battle with Alzheimer's, as her body was <coughs> failing her, as her mind had failed her, she only remembered my grandfather. She was still unique, still a wonderful person, still made and loved by God. Personhood is not rooted in what we do. Personhood is rooted in what God does, and God creates, and God knows. And there's one more aspect from Psalm 139 that makes a person a person. The human person is created for the tabernacling telos. Look with me, if you will, at verse 15 of Psalm 139. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. This word translated as woven is a rare word in the Old Testament. And when it is used, it is used almost exclusively to describe the curtains and the veils of the wilderness tabernacle. Why is this important? Pastor Peter Lightheart believes that David through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is pointing out, pointing toward a telos, a purpose for humanity to be the tabernacle of God. He states, In the womb, the Lord weaves the tent that the infant will wear until he puts it off at death. The psalm goes further, implying not only that God has made the infant in the womb, but also that the infant is being woven into a dwelling for God. Created by God in the image of God, made to be in a relationship of mutual knowing with God, and made for the purpose of housing God. Humans are persons, and thus the human life in its totality is sacred. No other living creature has such a grand and glorious telos or purpose. No other living creature has such a glorious beginning. Now, to be a human is to be a person, but I think there's one more thing that needs to be said. There is a true way to be human, a true way to reach the actuality of the potential that all humans share, being the tabernacle of the Creator. And that way is also known as the truth and the life. To be truly and fully human, to reach the potential for which we were made, to know God and be known by God in the totalness of what we're talking about here, we need to know Jesus. And Jesus is, in fact, the last word on what it is that gives the human life sanctity. As we heard from the Gospel of St. John, the eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
The incarnate eternal word was not a ghost in a machine. He was not a meat computer. Jesus was not some juicy robot driven about. No, Jesus was fully embodied. He was fully human while being fully divine. And this means something for the value and worth of humanity, of the body, for what it means to be a person. That the eternal Son of God would come into our world, be incarnated as a man, means something for the value of our flesh. We also see that the Son became incarnate for the purpose of offering salvation to the world. In the Scriptures, the human body is not something to be discarded, saved out of. Rather, the human body is part of that which makes part of what the person is that is being saved. The whole idea that we are saved away from this physical realm of existence to exist as some sort of nebulous spiritual being at some point in the future, in an ambiguous future, is actually a Gnostic principle, not a scriptural principle. It was a heresy condemned as such. In fact, if we b- truly believe Scripture, especially 1 Corinthians chapter 15, then what we recognize is that the resurrection of the body means your body is being saved, and thus it has value and meaning and worth. Made to be known by God, made to know God, human persons can only know God and be truly human by trusting in Jesus and in what He accomplishes upon the cross. Created by God in God's image, Ultimately, we are who we can be as we find our restoration, our redemption, and our fruition in Jesus. God offers these things for human persons, not for juicy robots, not for persons trapped in meat suits, but for the whole being, for the whole person. Bear with me for a few more minutes. We're coming to our conclusion. The biblical and historical Christian stand on the sanctity of human life can be summarized in the words of Justin Martyr, writing in the second century. It is evident, therefore, that man made in the image of God was a flesh. Is it not, then, absurd to say that the flesh made by God in his own image is contemptible and worth nothing? This truth is counter the cultural waters in which we swim, but this truth is freeing. In recognizing the integrated unity of body and person, the biblical point of view gives value, honor, dignity, and worth to all peoples, no matter their social usefulness, no matter their sickness or their health or their intelligence or their marital status or their childbearing status. To expand on Dr. Seuss's infinite wisdom, a person is a person, no matter how small or old or infirmed or ugly or hairy or political persuasion or nation of origin or ethnicity or even where they fall along the Florida-Florida state divide. (laughs) On a personal level, we need to hear this. Maybe today you need to hear this. You are of value You are of deep and lasting worth because you are made in the image of God. You are made to know and be known by Him. You are made for the purpose of being God's tabernacle. Jesus came. He died and He rose for you. On a corporate level, the church must reclaim its voice and swim upstream in its witness to the truth, to the scriptures, to the best way to be human. The church must recognize the undercurrents of our culture and actively reject them while maintaining a loving witness to those who disagree, all the while offering refuge, healing, and restoration to those who have broken upon the shores of the sea. 
while we recognize the difficulty in confronting the underlying worldview, we must continue to carry the fire. In his book called The Road, Cormac McCarthy writes about a bleak post-apocalyptic world. People have become animals, essentially cannibalizing one another for survival. There's a man and his boy. That's all they're named. They're looking for refuge. They're looking for safe harbor. And the man continues to give the boy hope by saying, you must carry the fire. And he says, Dad, you've never told me what the fire is. You know it. It's in you. We must carry the fire in this cultural sea, the fire of the image of God, of value, dignity, and worth, made in the image of God, made to know and be known by God, made to tabernacle God, ones for whom Jesus came and died and rose. And so we must actively then, the church, actively love those who are other. We must love the unborn and the dying. We must love those with bodies and minds that are in need of healing, those of a different skin color and ethnicity. We must love refugees and immigrants, the broken down and burned out, simply out of recognition that they are human persons created in the image of God, created to know God and to be known by Him, created for the tabernacling telos, ones for whom Jesus came, died, and rose from the dead. Specifically, the truth of the sanctity of human life must change the way we see the other people, the way we treat other people, the way we love them, and the way we honor them with protection, with rights, and with voice. The sanctity of human life should make us quick to protect all human life and slow to ever take it, to ever endanger it, abuse it, or ignore it. Created in the image of God, created to know God and be known by Him, created for the tabernacling telos, one for whom Jesus came, died, and rose from the dead. A person is a person, no matter how small or old, infirmed or ugly, hairy or political persuasion, of nation or origin, of ethnicity, or where they fall along the Alabama-Auburn divide. <laughs> and I've said this to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Gracious God, we praise you. Father, we adore you. Come and receive our worship and be glorified. You are the one who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Come as we worship. Come, Holy Spirit. Let us stand together and sing songs of praise to our Lord.